Now let us together turn to the New Testament scriptures in the book of 1 Timothy. The book of 1 Timothy in the New Testament, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. As the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy concerning the qualifications for the office of the elder in the church of God. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer or an elder, as in some translations, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to much wine, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same, under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Thus far, once more, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now, this morning, as we have come in the life of our congregation to a time when we are calling once more for the nomination of officers in our congregation. It seemed to me as your pastor a particularly appropriate time to consider for several Sunday mornings together the New Testament doctrine of the eldership. And indeed, I believe that one of the great needs in the Christian church today as we look around our own denomination, and as we see the church life in other Reformed denominations like our own, one of the great needs is a rediscovery of the dynamic doctrine of the eldership within the Christian church today. Now, we see many of our churches and denominations focusing upon different issues, the great issue of evangelism that should always be to the forefront of the church's thinking. We see the church at times focusing upon the subject of revival. We see it giving a great deal of attention today to the subject of church growth and how the church may grow numerically in this 20th century uh, society in the United States of America. And all of these concerns are, of course, very appropriate and very necessary. But I want to suggest to you on these Sunday mornings that one of the very vital areas and one which I think the modern church has greatly neglected is the area of the ruling eldership. Because after all, if the church grows and if God is pleased to visit us sovereignly with heaven-sent revival, what we need in our churches to deal with that situation is a godly leadership, a well-taught body of godly men who are able to take the new converts and nurture them 
in their newfound faith in Christ and lead God's people into the deeper truths of God's word and seek their edifying and their Christian growth. And indeed, I suggest to you that if the church is ineffective in evangelism and if the church is ill-equipped to serve its gracious and heavenly Lord, it comes down in the end to a weakness among its elders. And therefore, I suggest to you that the area of the eldership is vital, that we should seek for spiritual and mature and godly and inspired leadership in the church, the fruit of which is to build godly and well-disciplined and well-taught congregations. And in that connection, it is imperative that the practice of the eldership that was so vital and central in the New Testament church should be recovered by us in a powerful way. Now, to that end, for several Sunday mornings, we are going to look as a basis at the passage of 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7. It is one of 24 instances, you will be interested to know, in the New Testament where the eldership is mentioned as being a great blessing and of great good to God's people. Now, this morning, we are ranging further than the passage that we read from 1 Timothy 3 a moment ago, because I want to lay some very necessary foundations in your thinking on this subject of the office of the ruling eldership. Now, there are three things, in fact, that I want you to consider with me today. And the first of them is this, that the office of the eldership in the church has an ancient and honorable history. And I would appreciate this morning, if you have your Bible ready and you are able to turn with me in a moment to several of the passages to which I'm going to refer in the Old Testament. The office of the eldership has an ancient and honorable history. It is not a thing of yesterday. It has its foundation deeply rooted in God's people from the very first of time, as it were. Now, as we look around on modern society today, we are surely aware that every society, every nation, Every people on the earth today has some form of government of one kind or another. Indeed, it is the universal testimony of human experience and human history that some form of government is essential to the functioning of society, whether it is primitive or whether it is more civilized. And it has been endorsed in all our historical records through the millennia in human history, whether it is the chief of the clan, whether it is the hereditary czar, as in Russia with its wide dominions, whether it is through the constitutional monarch, as in my own country of Great Britain, or whether it is through the elected president with his Senate and House of Representatives, as in this Republic of America, which is our country here. Now, the Christian church, beloved, is also a society of men and women, believing men and women, 
who share a unique relationship with their God. And it should also have a form of government. The great God whom we worship and love and serve, you see, has not left it to the imagination of God's people as to how they will be governed and led and guided. And indeed, in the Bible, from the very earliest times, as I mentioned a moment ago, the regime under which the people of God live and prosper has been clearly laid down. But it is a form of representative government of men, godly men, chosen from among God's people, but responsible ultimately not to God's people alone, but to God himself. In a word, it is from the most ancient times by the office of the elder that God's people are to be led and governed and guided. Now consider with me then that this office is indeed from antiquity. It is not an institution of yesteryear. The sources of the Nile have been discovered, but not the source of this honorable order. The pharaohs of Egypt, who saw the pyramids before they decayed, had become aware of the office of the eldership through contact with God's people under Moses. The pyramids have crumbled. The pharaohs have long disappeared from the scene of history. But this honorable order of the eldership continues. And indeed, we are led to believe, if we can find its origins, they lie deeply embedded in the ancient book of Genesis, in the line of the godly patriarchs, descending from Adam through Seth as they led their own families in the worship of God and preserved them from the surrounding corruption of idolatry and unbelief. There, if anywhere, is the origin of the eldership in the godly leadership of the ancient patriarch within his own family, preserving and propagating the faith in the true and living God. But when Moses returned to Egypt early in the book of Genesis, in, in the book of Exodus, we see already that there was a divinely commissioned order of elders. If you turn with me in your Bible for a moment to Exodus 3, verse 16, you find that as Moses went to see Pharaoh, he said to them in Exodus 3, verse 16, as God said to Moses to visit Pharaoh, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you, the Lord said. 
Then you and the elders of Israel are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Now you see it again if you turn on to Exodus 12, verse 21. We read there in Exodus 12, verse 21, Then Moses summoned the elders of Israel, and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. The great occasion of the Passover feast, it was the elders of Israel who led the way and set the example in observing that custom that was to be annually commemorated in the lives of God's people. You look on in Numbers chapter 12, Verses 16 and 17, if you will turn to that with me. Numbers 12, verses 16 and 17. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me seventy of Israel's elders, who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting, that they may stand there with you. I will come and speak with you there, and I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone, and so on. Now you see what I'm saying to you. The origin of the eldership has a long and honorable pedigree. You see it in the later time of the judges in the book of Ruth, when Boaz goes to claim Ruth as his wife, and in the presence of the elders of Israel, that great transaction prescribed by Moses is undertaken that Ruth might become the beloved husband of Boaz. You see it referred to in the book of Psalms, where our very call to worship this morning in the worship bulletin is a summons to the elders to lead God's people in his great and honorable praise. You see it mentioned in the book of Chronicles as being there in the time of the kings, an honorable institution. Even when Israel is driven by exile to Babylon, We read in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra of the elders leading the people back from captivity to the land of promise and being forefront in the rebuilding of the ancient temple in Jerusalem again. They led the way homeward. They were the examples that brought God's people back to their holy faith in the Lord after these long years of desolate captivity. And even in our Lord's time, we find that the institution of the synagogue that had grown up between the end of the Old Testament period and the beginning of the new had a central place for the elders in the worship of God. The office then has an ancient and a very honorable pedigree. Now, secondly, I want you to notice with me this morning that the office of the eldership also has an honored place in the Christian era. Now, not only is it an institution of the old covenant days, but we see it as a foremost institution in the New Testament church. 
as we read 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7, I reminded you that that is only one of at least 24 places in the New Testament scriptures where the eldership is particularly named. Now, look again with me, if you will, in your own Bible at some of these instances. In Acts 11, verse 30, if you would turn to that passage with me, we see a remarkable incident there of the importance of the institution in the life of the early church. In Acts 11, verse 30, we read that when by the prophecy of Agabus the prophet, it was announced that there would be a great famine through all the Roman world, a famine that came about in the days of the emperor Claudius, the Gentile church at Antioch, where Paul and Silas, you remember, were ministering, that church decided to send up relief to the mother church of Jerusalem in view of the impending famine conditions. And we read in Acts 11 verse 30, this they determined to do and sent it up by the hand of Barnabas and of Saul to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. They're there in the New Testament church without any prolegomena or previous announcement as a natural carryover from the Old Testament office. Now, if you look on a few pages in the book of Acts to chapter 14, verse 23, a classic passage for the doctrine of the eldership, you see the apostle Paul itinerating through the great areas of the Roman Empire where there was paganism and heathen darkness and establishing this congregation of believing Christians here and that congregation there until you come to Acts 14, verse 23, and we read of an established practice of these apostles in the early days of the church as they created new Christian congregations. He gave them a form of government. And it was the government, you notice, by the elder. Paul and Barnabas, verse 23, appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And again, if you turn on in Acts 20 from verse 17, you find that great passage where the apostle calls together the elders of the church of Ephesus on his last journey to, to, to Jerusalem and addresses them there on the sands of the little seaport of Miletus on the coast of the Aegean Sea. And knowing that they will not see his face anymore, he solemnly says to them, I know, you know, how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. Guard yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds to the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The charge, my dear friends, is not to ministers of the gospel, that is, teaching elders, but primarily to those who occupy the great and beneficial office of the ruling elders. He sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church and gave them this solemn and wonderful charge. Now we could go on 
and take up a great deal of time, which we'll not do this morning. Peter mentions the office of the elder in First Peter chapter 5. To the elders among you, I write, he says, as your fellow elder. James mentions the office in chapter 5 of his letter in connection with the visitation of the sick. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. The author of that great letter to the Hebrews, whoever he was, writes in the final chapter in Hebrews 13, verses 7 and 17, of that great office as he charges his hearers to remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God and obey them and submit to their authority, for they keep watch over you as men who must give account. And even in the book of Revelation, with the vision of heaven and the church glorified around the throne of God, there are 24 other thrones in a great circle upon which sit the 24 elders, whoever they may be. But the office has a continuing place of honor, even in the heavenly glory above. Now, in summary, you see, my friends, what this says to us is that this great and beneficial office, with its roots deep in the antiquity of God's people in the past, is continued on and transplanted into the fresh soil of the New Testament scriptures and the New Testament church. Now, it can be shown, you see, that every other humanly devised office in the churches today is of human origination and without divine and biblical sanction. Whether you look at the cardinals of the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope himself, the archbishop, the bishop, the archdeacon, the priest, all are of human origination and contrivance, and not with scriptural warrant. But this office is divinely mandated for the welfare and the growth and the blessing of God's people. And where it is honored and practiced, the church will grow and be deeply blessed, and where it is despised and neglected, there will be weakness by contrast there. The very richness of the titles that are used in the New Testament to describe this office makes plain its importance. Elder, overseer, shepherd, pastor, teacher, leader, governor. The terms fall over one another and spill out their richness in every degree. There is no other ongoing office of authority in the Christian church than this. It has, in the Christian church, an honored place in this present era as none else has. Now, thirdly, as I draw to a close this morning, the third truth before us is that the office of the eldership 
has a vital and indispensable function in the Christian church. Well, you may say to me, I understand that it is rooted in the very ancient things of God's word and God's people. I understand it is continued in the Christian church as the divinely mandated rule under which God's people are to live. And if you know your church history, you might go further on this Reformation Sunday morning and say to me, I know also that it was rediscovered in the days of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century and through John Calvin particularly and John Knox in my own country of Scotland, it was revived and reinvigorated and given the place in the Reformed Church that it should still bear today a place of honor and distinction as the means by which God visits his people with great strength and great blessing, a vital office then today. But you might say to me then, in the light of all this, what is its function amongst us? Well, in answer I say this. It is inconceivable that the Lord Jesus should leave his people, whom he has redeemed at infinite cost by the shedding of his own blood, without adequate care. How could it be that he, the great shepherd of the sheep, the good shepherd of the sheep, would leave his flock without guidance and provision and pastoral care in this wicked and evil generation in which we live? So to establish his church in the New Testament era, You remember, he gave the unique office of apostles and evangelists and prophets, all of which were for that time of the New Testament churches establishing and were not to be continued thereafter, as we know. But in order to continue the care of apostles and prophets and evangelists, he established also the abiding office of the eldership, for the maturing of God's people, for their oversight, for their training in righteousness, for their teaching in the whole blessed counsel of the Lord their God. He provided the office of elders, both teaching elders and ruling elders, as we know. Now approach it with me for a moment, if you will, in the light of the teaching that Christ is our prophet, that Christ is our priest, and Christ is our king. Those are the designations in which the Reformed Church has always recognized the ministry of Jesus. He is a prophet to his people. He teaches them. He is a priest to his people. Having offered himself once for all for their sins, he continues to intercede for them and to sympathize with them and minister to them as the priest of the Old Testament did, though a sinful and fallible man. And he is a king to them. He rules over them and defends them from all his enemies and theirs and rescues them out of their hand and delivers them. He meets in every instance, the pastoral needs of his sheep. 
Well, what is the practical agency then by which he does this as the great shepherd and the good shepherd? Through the elder. Think, Christ is our prophet this morning. And he speaks to us his holy word through his elders. Primarily through the teaching elder who has been set aside by the Christian church upon examination of his calling and his teaching gift, but also to a lesser but still important extent through the gift of the ruling elder. As we read in 1 Timothy 3 this morning, the ruling elder is to be apt to teach. So Christ, you see, becomes present to his people in the teaching and preaching of his word through the sinful and fallible efforts of his elders. He that hears you, said Jesus, hears me. As that word comes to us, dear people, and dispels our ignorance and turns our darkness to light and continues to keep us living and serving in right and biblical ways. And one of the great priorities that we're going to see in these coming Sunday mornings is that the elder, whether teaching or ruling elder, is to provide the nourishment and pasturage of God's word for God's people. It's one of his great functions because he represents on earth the office of Christ the prophet who speaks to us his royal word. And may we long for it. But then there is Christ the priest and the elders. You see, it's the function of the elders in their office representing the priesthood of Christ to sympathize with God's people. And we're going to see on these Sunday mornings that no small part of the elders' work is to be able to draw near to the needs of God's people, their weaknesses and their infirmities, their doubts and their difficulties on the pilgrim path as they journey to the celestial city and lovingly enfold them, as it were, in their arms and say to them, dear brother and sister, I'm with you. I understand where you are. I can sympathize with what you're wrestling. And I want to encourage you in the name of my great master by sharing this burden with you, by uplifting you in your weakness and your infirmity, by praying for you in all your needs as together we come to the throne of grace in prayer. Elders, pastors, are to be marked by loving care for the flock because they represent the Lord Jesus in his office as the great high priest of God's people and they are to bear God's people in their hearts constantly. But you see the third way in which the eldership functions as an indispensable means of blessing in our congregations is that the elder represents Christ the King. You know, we are not a democracy in the Christian church. We do not come by decisions on the basis of a majority vote. God forbid that in this age of democratic thinking. In the church, beloved, we are a theocracy 
a glorious monarchy, if you like, where Christ is the great king and head of his church, and he rules not by majority decision, but by giving us his own infallible direction, his own royal law, his own inscrutable word. And it is the duty of the membership to submit to Christ as king as they read of his royal will declared in his word of scripture. And he exercises, you see, that theocracy or monarchy through his elders, through the preaching of the word, the sheep hear not good advice, but the royal will of the great shepherd. His laws and discipline are likewise expounded in the word, and through the oversight of godly men, the flock is led into an obedient life that is pleasing to their great king and head. Now you see what it comes down to very simply is this, that when the flock obey their leaders, if those leaders are acting biblically and faithfully, they are submitting not to the elders, but to Christ. They are under his rule. And if they esteem their elders highly for their work's sake, as we are commanded to do in Scripture, then they are esteeming the person and work of their king who has designated that authority to, alas, very sinful and often fallible men. They are honoring not men, you see, but God. As Paul said to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, the Holy Ghost has made you overseers of this flock. And so there is the aspect of Christ's kingship as there is of his priesthood and as there is of his prophethood. Well, as I finish this morning, it is an ancient and honorable ordinance. It has a vital and indispensable place in the life of the Christian church, and it has an equally vital and indispensable place in the functioning role of our congregations today. As I finish, let me quote to you for a moment the wise words of Samuel Miller, in his very fine little booklet on the eldership that, interestingly, we have available on the church book stand. As Samuel Miller says this, We are by no means, then, to consider the ruling elders as a mere ecclesiastical convenience or as a set of counselors whom the wisdom of man alone has chosen and who may, therefore, be reverenced and obeyed as little or as much as human caprice may think proper, but as bearing an office of divine appointment, as the ministers of God for good to his church. That's how we are to think of them, and whose lawful and regular acts ought to command our conscientious obedience. Indeed, government by elders 
in summary, is surely a biblical one. And any criticism of this procedure is a criticism in the end, as Miller says, of what the Holy Spirit has revealed to us in the Word of God. Let us look to this office prayerfully. Let us pray for those who occupy it. Let us in these days of nomination to this very significant office of service among God's people pray that he will give us wisdom to nominate those whom we discern have the gifts and qualifications for it and may enter into it as a means of being a significant encouragement and a rich scriptural blessing in every sense to the flock of Christ here in this congregation of Westminster. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the teaching of all the scriptures, not simply the New Testament alone, of all the scriptures concerning the very central function and ministry of that office of eldership. We thank thee indeed for its ancient pedigree, for its continuance as it is taken and transplanted into the rich soil of God's new covenant people, there to flourish and be the means of much good. And we pray that in the life of our own congregation here, it may please thee to add significantly to the number of elders in these days, that thy people may be well and godly served to their growth in grace and in their increase in the rich knowledge of thyself, the great and the good shepherd of thy people. May it please thee to grant us this blessing for Christ's sake. Amen.